Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Another episode of the VanCast, and Harm, you know, I thought that this was going to be one of those where we were going to be in complete contrast from where we were a week ago when the sky was falling. I thought we were so close to getting into this show, talking about a three-game win streak and whether or not everything has turned around, which we know it wouldn't have been, but just, you know, we thought maybe we could have a complete positive spin VanCast for one show. And not that this is going to be all negative, because there's a lot of good to talk about. However, uh, a seventh-blown two-goal lead in the first 19 games of the season. Just an incredible, incredible um, feat, defeat, however you want to classify it. But here we are again, buddy. We are. And it's it's just funny at this point because at least I guess they're doing it in an entertaining kind of wild back and forth way. I, I mean, the last thing you could call that game was dull or, um, or boring to watch. At least fans got got their money's worth the ones who attended in terms of an entertaining game and it was it's funny because after the first disallowed um vegas 5-4 goal i don't think you could have found a single person watching the game who thought to themselves boy with that second lease on life the canucks are going to take advantage of that and, and end up winning the game at that point it was you could just tell given the team's history that it was they were going to kind of fall short again and and that's exactly what happened it just there's this feeling of inevitability when one thing goes wrong that everything else is going going to as well it just feels Boy, like this group is i i don't think i've ever seen anything like this in terms of one mistake and and it already being like oh boy here we go again no i thought it was going to turn it around i truly did um okay i didn't even get a reaction out of you from that Awesome. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to continue going. <laughs> no, actually, it wasn't just that it was disallowed, but I did think the the amount of time it took for them to get to the decision, because it's an awkward one, right? It wasn't a standard one. Oh, it was over the, the glass. It wasn't, right? The fact that there was a bit of awkwardness to it really gave the Canucks a break. And actually, I think Bruce Boudreau referred to this after, that he thought that the, the delay was going to be enough to get him going. And how, how long did it take from disallowed goal to – Next allowed goal, like less than two minutes. It was amazing just how fast it happened. I don't know it was more amazing that it happened that way or that the Canucks actually had a two-goal lead in this game to begin with, but um, it just tells you everything you need to know that uh, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. They stare it right in the face. Like they look down the throat of a gift horse and and give it right back on a regular basis. That camera lens, by the way, 
if he can just just toss him on the right side of the defense, that's the most resilience I think we saw out of any uh, out of any player or or anything on the ice from the Canucks' end in that third period. And, well, Wyatt, and a- Wyatt was good. He's like, yeah. He says, yeah, camera lens. Uh, let's see you get the team to the Stanley Cup final. Oh yeah, it's got nothing on the stanchion. Well, let's see. I think we could construct a could we construct a D pair with the stanchion and um and the camera lens at this point. Might defend the front of the net better. Yeah, that could be their top pair. There, there's simply no doubt about it. That could be their top pair. And look, there, there's a lot to get into on the game that isn't necessarily uh, great, right? I mean, you know, we we five goals again from Thatcher Demko, made some great saves in the first period, but then turned into with the Thatcher Demko we've seen of late. Uh, you've got the top line, who was just a disaster in its own end. Uh, wasn't just JT Miller, you know, Brock Besser, sorry, Bo Horvat had his troubles and they put Brock Besser on that line. He was no better, especially on the game-winning goal. Um, so there's a lot to get in on a weekly basis as to what's wrong, but let's talk about what's right. And one of the guys that you have to just love is Luke Shen. And you wrote a, a column or an article on him, a feature that was great, just about his, um, what he's been through, you know, prior to coming to the Canucks, during his time with the Canucks, coming back to the Canucks, like all of that. And last night was the perfect launch point, even though you've been working on this for a while, where he takes a puck in the face has to leave the game, didn't look good at all, comes back, uh, scores a goal, or that actually I think the one was deflected, but did so many good things right after coming back. Like he is everything you want this team to be because when you look at this team, the one thing that's clear, and we saw it on the game-winning goal, this is the easiest team in the world to play against, right? Like you can just cruise through the defensive zone or, you know, the, the opposition's offensive zone. You can get anything you want in the front of the net. You know, Brock Besser's barely going to touch you along with everybody else. Cross-team passes, no problem. Like, it is Christmas every day playing this team. But Luke Shen is not that guy. And we saw it last night, and unfortunately for him, all of his valiant efforts end up in defeat. For sure. And I got to say, the way he took that shot off the back of his head – how quickly he got up after that like boy i think if i took something like that i'd be down and out for a while and and i wouldn't even want to step back on the ice for for god knows how long and just seeing the way that he was able to power through that and then not only come back but even when he did return he was so steady as always allowing kind of a, a big part of why Quinn Hughes, I, th- I I thought, played one of his most dynamic games of the season was because Shen was just so steady in the right moment, being able to pinch in the neutral zone or, or the offensive end to keep a play alive. Uh, one-on-one defensively, rock solid as always. He obviously was rewarded with, um, with a bounce on the goal that he had to put the team up 3-2, I believe. It was just an all-around steady effort. And when I think back to his journey you just can't help but feel really good about uh, about how he's been able to uh, preserve through everything that's happened to him i mean this is a player who's been through virtually every possible experience in the nhl i mean i was talking to him about the initial experience of getting drafted by the leafs in 2008 top five pick can you imagine the pressure that comes with that as an 18 year old kid he was telling me that as soon as he had the jersey on and, and had the cap on, went backstage to do the first uh, TV interview. The first question he got was, the Leafs haven't won a cup since 1967. What are you, you going to do to change that? Like, holy cow, You imagine that you've just had the jersey on for less than two minutes and you're already being asked to be this franchise savior for a totally dysfunctional organization. It's, it's a ton of pressure. And remember too, Luke Shen... You could understand, given how high he was drafted, the expectations of, hey, he was supposed to be this franchise defenseman, but it wasn't really his fault. He was never really going to be that guy. I mean, he sort of mentioned to me, hey, like he had 29 points in the WHNL's draft year. He didn't even play on the power play, and yet he's in this top five and his peers in that draft class in terms of defensemen are Drew Doughty and Alex Petrangelo. So when he arrives in the NA, in the NHL, it isn't just you've got to play well, but you're you're all of a sudden being compared to Dowdy and Petrangelo and expected to to live up to that kind of bar, and that's where he told me that he kind of started to stray away from his identity as a player that he that he was kind of felt the pressure and weight to do a little bit offensively and 
Obviously, it was a few up and down years in Toronto, and and then he gets dealt to um, Philadelphia in the JVR trade. Bounces around uh, a bunch there, Philly, LA, Arizona, then winds up in Anaheim. And this is where I think you could have seen a make or break point in his career. At this point, he's 29, and he's been through second and third chances. He doesn't really have the the glory and, and the and the pedigree of oh hey hey he's a top five pick and so he deserves any uh, chances on that merit and after his first month with uh, with the Ducks he was waived and demoted and he and he was basically told look we don't really see a future for for you here it's not as if they were sort of telling him hey you can play well down in the minors and you'll get another shot like. The Ducks were done done with him as an NHL player. And they, in fact, some coaches on that team were were pushing him that, hey, you're 29, you've 10 years in the league. This is the first time you're going to go down the minors. Sure, you want to go down there? They were pushing him to retire. And he's got this young family. He's making, he has to make all these two-hour drives to San Diego every day. And just the resilience there and 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 the way that he sort of came back, and um, I'm sure we'll we'll talk talk a little bit about um, even coming back to Vancouver, the initial adversity he faced. But um, that was a moment he could have really quit. He had everything going against him. He had every reason to believe that he was done. But to see him kind of coming back, and now at 33 years old, despite being the oldest player on this team, he's playing the best hockey of his career. He's kind of he's kind of getting better with age. It's you just it's just such a fuzzy feel good story. Yeah. You know, it is on so many levels. And when for me, and not that I want to be Jim Benning where you overpay for character and you overturn for character. But if you gave me one person, I'd love to see back here around this team during a rebuild it might be Luke Shen and, and he might be the easiest to move. So I'm not suggesting you've got to just go down with the ship here, but you know, when you look at it for, for my money, like the guys I'd love to see around here, and anybody else could go would be Pedersen, Horvat, and Shen. And, you know, Pedersen for just pure ability, which is still there and still climbing on a better team, it would be so much better for him. And we'll get into, you know, why he's being deployed the way he is. And then we, we got to get into the save of the year, right? Because how good was that? Oh, yeah. Too bad, it, too bad it didn't lead to something coming back the other way. I mean, Alex Edler, come on. All those times you tried to be a goalie and that right there, your fellow countrymen just showed you up. But for me... It, it's those three guys, and and I look. I know what I wouldn't Dem- have Horvat on my list, though. Like I know, I, I get, and I get, I get why, right? Like I get why because right now, given the current status, and you may have other reasons. I mean, given the current status, you actually have the ability to move on from him and not go down the rabbit hole of overpaying, overterming, over everything. Given the situation you're in, and his value could be at an all time high. I totally get it, but in terms of people. I believe any organization can win with, right? I mean, if, if I'm a team looking for a, a defenseman that could be in my bottom pair, that could climb up and play key minutes in the top four in the playoffs, and I believe I'm a legitimate contender, like Luke Shen is right there, especially at that price point, like just the perfect contract. But everybody would want that guy. You know, I love when I you, you and I were texting each other and you, the data prodigy, referred to Luke Shen as a glue guy. Right when when yeah. data guys start pulling out glue guy, okay, uh, like I'm thinking, okay, we might be onto something here, right? I don't know if there's a data point around glue, but clearly uh, he he's impressing the data guys. So you know they can't quantify why yeah. they're impressing well, him. They just know they just know that he's just you know he is that guy. And and I'm telling you, like, tell me how many times we've come on this show and we've talked about Luke Shen being a problem. I'm waiting. You know, because it just doesn't happen. We can talk about whether or not he should be getting top pair minutes alongside of Quinn Hughes on a nightly basis and whether or not that's good for the team, but it's clearly good for Quinn Hughes. At no point have we gone through that exercise of where Quinn, of where Luke Shen needs to be deployed. And we're saying, like, we might philosophically say, boy, how good could this team be if they could get Luke Shen onto a third pair? But we've never said anything negative about his play or his performance, regardless of usage, on a team this bad. Like, think about that for a minute. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, and in terms of the glue guy thing, for starters, his glue per 60s is, is off the charts. I'll, I'll tell you that. I ran that yeah, in, exactly. ran that, what about, ran that in what some What about his expected spreadsheets. glue? Is there an expected <laughs> glue? <laughs> expected glue is, is amazing. Leads the team by a long shot. But 
No, in all seriousness, the other thing that was fascinating in kind of doing some research and, Corsi and talking glue. To let's people, get to cor- let's get to Corsi glue. Corsi we can brand that. We can uh, brand that. that. That's private an- analytics. I can't share that one. That's uh, that, that's behind the. Uh, that's going to be eventually behind the athletic paywall. Um, Dom Lucision only. Yeah, his his model. You're going to have to subscribe for that. We've, we've got a glue model. model. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the other thing that kind of stood out was kind of along those lines was. I think, I think a lot of times, even just to kind of define what a, a glue guy kind of is and, and why that sort of means something is it, it's a sort of player to me who can bring people together in a dressing room because I think one thing that's been apparent since um, Tanev, Markstrom, and Toffoli left is that there hasn't necessarily been that chain link that can connect certain um factions of of the dressing room together if that kind of makes sense because look on any team there's always going to be whether it's age related or or uh guys that played with each other earlier in their career there's always going to be you know little groups of of friends that are especially close with one another and i think as a team what you're looking for is for those little groups to eventually just become one big group um and Shen is the sort of player where you look back at previous stops that he's been uh, he's been at in his NHL career. He's always been that guy when it comes to like he was the point man for setting up team dinners. He's tried to do that a lot when the when the Canucks were in Toronto, for example. Him and Tyler Myers was trying to organize and, and kind of bring the team together. And even in Tampa, the Lightning really relied a lot on him in that kind of role where. Um, Shen was telling me that he and Ryan McDonough were the ones are, that were kind of responsible for uh, putting together the menus, sending them in to the team services guys for when the team would go to restaurants before playoff games. And, and just how much that camaraderie and that team bonding aspect mattered in the in the playoffs, uh, because you need that element for to, to feel an accountability to fight for one another, to fight for one another. Um, to have that accountability for each other, have that feeling of, hey, I don't want to let the guy across from me down. And that's where Shen is, I, I think, essential. And they just don't have enough of those types of uh, presences in the locker room, I feel, just being in and around the team, even to a lesser extent, when they lost a, a guy like Troy Stetcher in the 2019-20 season. Like, that was another example of, of a guy like that where you're looking at players who can who connect just as well with the veterans as they do with the young guys. Right. And that's where like Tanev was so, you know, he's, he was a, a veteran, but Tanev, for example, was so close with Queen Hughes and Markstrom had a great, great connection with, with Elias Pedersen and Stetcher was kind of in the, in the middle range as a 20, 26 year old around, uh, around that point where he was really close with Besser and Pedersen and those guys, but he could also connect with the older guys. And, and the, the Canucks current group, I just don't feel like they have enough of those, stop gaps in between guys who can connect with everyone and who, who people who go, go out of their way to kind of connect everyone. And um, we even saw Shen in situations here and there um, when the clip sort of went viral after a uh, hockey night in Canada, where Shen's trying to hold JT Miller accountable. Like who else could honestly try and hold JT Miller accountable, which at Nobody. that point, not in that felt, room. Exactly. And that was really, really important. So, it's just telling, especially given his pedigree. He's won back-to-back cups. He knows kind of, he actually knows what it takes to win, right? Like people, that label is thrown around so much. He actually knows what it takes. And he's just so valuable in that way. And and they just don't have enough of that ingre- ingredient on this team right now. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, you know, we, we probably undervalued that with Tanev. And, and I don't know what the solution is, right? Because when you go bring in a Jay Beagle, like glue in one room isn't necessarily going to be glue in another. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't know what kind of impact a player at the bottom of a lineup somewhere else has. You bring him in thinking, okay, because he's won a Stanley Cup, you can elevate him slightly in your lineup, which generally isn't a good idea. Um, and, you expect him to have the same impact chemistry-wise in your room that he did in another room, and that's just not real, right? And in the case of Tanev, he probably has had that impact in Calgary's room, but they also had some familiar faces around him when he got there. Um, you know, the effect he could have had here was probably underplayed because his, his injuries and his analytics were declining so much by the time he got out of here and, you know, it gave him a new lease on life. And, you know, for me, I think that what they had Shen, got, lost him, got him back, 
and he's had the same effect. And and I don't think there's a path to keep him. And that, that's my question to you. Like, what are the chances he's on this team at the end of the season? I think very, very low. I don't think they're very high. The other thing to kind of keep in mind is a a, a player like Shen, a, pro, a professional who's been through a winning environment, who saw what it was like to be in Tampa. He's got to have some, he's going to have, have pride about sort of playing in, in, on a team with the right culture and, and a team that's headed in the right direction. And I think a big part of why he signed here and signed back here in the first place was, well, an issue why he left a big, a big reason, um, after the 2018 19 season, because after that point, I think a lot of Canucks fans were hoping he'd return. I think the reason, in, in large part was because he was so close to Steven Stamkos for a long time. They'd played together on World Juniors and they kind of, I believe, had lived in the same area um, in Ontario. So that was alluring and the chance to win a Stanley Cup. Once he checked those boxes, I think, you know, for starters, the opportunity to play a more substantial role stood out. But also, I think he genuinely felt that the young core was headed in the right direction. And I think he liked the idea of helping usher that next wave and that he believed in the direction of this franchise. Clearly that direction hasn't gone in the right way at all. And with the organization kind of in a tire fire situation right now, I don't know why anyone would really feel a strong urge that, Hey, I need to, that I, I really, really want to be back. Especially when you're Shen, you're going to be highly sought after in the off season, given the quality of her play. Um, but also, and this is, uh, I kind of wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier with the whole leadership aspect and, um, and and how you can't fix your room just by bringing in a, a Beagle or a Roussel. I think the important thing to always keep in mind when it comes to leadership and uh, kind of a lot of those intangibles are they need to be backed up by on ice play. And I think that's the distinguishing factor where, look, if Luke Shen was struggling and he was the seventh, eighth defenseman who couldn't keep up and, and he had no wheels like that, his his words then wouldn't mean much because he he's he's not able to kind of back it up with his play and i think that's always a a big respect factor is you've got to be able to genuinely be in in an impact player you can't just be a fourth line guy um who who gets caved in all night in his own end and and your only job is to win faceoffs and kill the odd penalty um and otherwise you're a liability and then expect that guys are going to rally around you as a major focal point leader. Like that's just not going to happen. And I think that was part of the key behind um, those three aforementioned Tanev, Markstrom and Toffoli was they're also playing such pivotal roles um, where Tanev was on the top pair next to Hughes. Markstrom was your starting goalie. Toffoli was an essential top six piece. And I think that's uh, essential because I think back to all those Oilers teams back in the day where they were such a disaster um, despite getting the first overall pick every year and they would consistently harp on, oh, the culture's wrong. The, the, we don't have a culture of accountability and they were right. It's not that they were wrong, but they thought the solution was to bring in all these like fourth line guys and bottom pair defensemen with solid intangibles and that they could somehow steer the ship. The problem was when they, when they named, for example, a washed up Andrew Ference, for example, as a captain for a bit and this was... I was trying to remember whether it was a, uh, a Twitter thread or whether it was a podcast. It's interesting hearing hearing, hearing him kind of explain that his like at a certain point he just couldn't keep the keep the room in control because how like what how much could he honestly say as a as a bottom pair guy when when the top players all of a sudden were able able to kind of look down at Ferentz and kind of be like well what do you really do for this team and I think that's. One thing to, you know, it's a bit of a, an aside from the Shen conversation, but I think it's important as we kind of discuss culture and accountability in the state of this team going forward is it really has to, that responsibility largely lies with your top players and it, and it helps when you have your entire roster buying in, but really that tone um, is a top-down sort of thing. And that's why I think it's so hard to kind of, um, build and, and fix that sort of thing. Yeah, no doubt. And when you look at his numbers last night in terms of his, his shot share scoring chances, like he was sitting there at 66.7%, um, you know, goes for all of it. Like he, he delivers. On a night where they were crushed. And I think that's yeah. the other thing too, that. 60, um, 16 minutes on the ice, five on five minutes. And like he, he delivers 
Absolutely. And, and again, on a night where the team was crushed, and that's the other thing that I kind of wanted to get into was, yeah, they had the blown lead and we, we can talk about the third period meltdown and it says a lot about how fragile they are as a group and how one mistake compounds to multiple. But really, after the first two periods, I didn't think they had much business being in the game in the first place. And to me, the first period was really telling as well. Okay, well, listen, before you get too deep into it, we got to take okay. a quick break. When we come back, let's let's dive in. You know, we, we needed a positive block arm. Yeah, we Don't did. Don't take my block and make it <laughs> negative. Okay, during the break, you can come up with the glue metric, but, it, you know, come on, let's, let's finish it. Let's finish a positive block. All right, when we come back. Wings for the game. Boom, cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom, cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking a W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game-changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so Harm, like let's let's get back to the house of negativity here. Well, no, let's not do that. But um, they were fortunate. There's no doubt that uh, to to get into the midway point of that game, uh, even though you know they gave up the two goals within a minute. Overall, they were fortunate to be where they were for much of this this game. For sure. Especially the first period stood out to me because it was an example to me of, I didn't even think the Canucks played that poorly when it came to their own mistakes, um, how they were managing the puck, breakouts. Like I thought they were actually playing pretty decently, especially in the first five to 10 minutes where their passing was crisp. And yet it was a reminder that even when the Canucks are competent and playing polished by their standards, they can still be overwhelmed. Like the shots were 17-8. Vegas took control of that period despite Vancouver, again, not playing that poorly. And, and that was really concerning to me because it was a reminder that the Canucks aren't even in the same league as the, as the top teams in the league when they're kind of playing up to their standard. And the biggest thing that st- stood out along those lines was the speed difference. It just felt like that was one area where the Canucks had no answers. They had no ability to sort of fight back against that, where as soon as the Canucks would lose possession in the offensive zone, zone, I think that was one part where the Canucks could maybe make the first couple passes in the first period through the, new, through the defensive and neutral zone. Vegas defended the line really well, and the Canucks couldn't really connect their passes in the offensive zone. And as soon as that would happen, The Golden Knights were just off to the races. They were counterattacking so quickly, not only in terms of their speed, in terms of their feet, but how quickly they connected plays, how tightly and organized they could support the the play in in the puck so that they consistently provided easy passing passing outlets. That was such an organized, um, well-put-together team where the speed was just like it was night and day. It felt like the analogy that I kind of drew was it was like they were zipping around 120 on the highway and the Canucks were in the slow lane doing 80. Just their car couldn't do anything over 80. There was one sequence around the six minute mark of that first period, which was, I was like, wow, where it stood out to me because it wasn't a player like Jack Eichel or Chandler Stevenson or anybody else in Vegas's top six making the difference. It was William Carey and the fourth line. Where after a neutral zone faceoff, Carrier within a mere matter of seconds was able to get behind the defense. Vegas got a controlled entry from his fourth line. Which, how many times did the Canucks honestly get controlled entries and rush chances from a non-Patterson line? Anyway, Carrier got behind and couldn't convert on the partial breakaway. But then, just seeing Kolasar and Howden just hound the puck, close so quickly with their speed, recover the puck, 
zip, zip the puck around the offensive zone, um, low to high, back back low. They, they were able to jam grade A chances. And then, and then it was funny because the Canucks then had a chance to counter. They picked up the puck and their transition was so slow. They entered the offensive zone. They, they took a feeble shot, which was um, deflected away. And as soon as Petrangelo picked up the puck, it was boom, boom, two passes. And then all the time and space in the world to generate a scoring chance off the rush in the slot. Like that was the sort of sequence where I was looking at it and going, I, I can't identify the Canucks making too many mistakes in that sequence. They were just flat out overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, the, the speed gap against selected teams, whether it's Calgary, whether it's Edmonton, who are like it clearly shows when the Canucks play them. And they don't have a, a strategy necessarily on how to mitigate it and slow it down. They just want to play the same way, right? And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before in terms of, of Bruce Boudreaux. He's not going to be necessarily changing much. He's going to be kind of going down with the ship. Um, let's Let's talk a little bit about Vancouver's top line, theoretical top line, right? It started uh, as Garland, Miller, and Horvat with Horvat in the middle. And then eventually Garland left that line and they added Brock Besser to that line uh, for the third period or maybe some late stages in the second period as well. Um, a line that looked like they were struggling big time. You know, I know that plus minus isn't always telling, but as far as uh, JT Miller's concerned on the ice for another four goals in this game, um, that winning goal, like I, I've talked about it a couple of times where Brock Besser just kind of cruised through the slot, made it so easy for the rebound. Um, where where are we with that group? Why does a group that seemingly has all the physical effectiveness, and we saw in, in Besser's case last year, he had positive two-way results. What is going on here with this group? Yeah, it's a fair question. I think, and, I, and I think look, we love what Horvat's doing offensively. Yeah. We love what Horvat's doing offensively. But, you know, to, to net out even on a nightly basis is troubling. Well, that's part of the story is Miller and Horvat can create offense together, but defensively, they are still such a high event duo. And quite frankly, I don't think they're well, well suited at all to sort of defend against top lines the way they're playing right now. I think one of, there isn't, there isn't a ton I can blame Boudreaux on in terms of the season as a whole. I just don't think that he has the right, um, the right horses to, to field winning team, but one of the biggest miscalculations of the season that he's made, I, I believe, was entrusting um, Miller as, as kind of his matchup guy. And not to pick on him specifically, because now he's been with Horvat, as you mentioned. And um, the bigger point is, he I don't think Boudreaux's realized that Pedersen has to be his go-to guy for defending against top lines for head-to-head -head against the opposition's best players. Because against Jack Eichel, that was really the game right there was that Eichel line and how they dominated the Canucks. They had 15 minutes head-to-head -head against um, the Horvat-Miller line. And, and in those minutes, we're talking 10-5 shot advantage, 7-1 um, high danger chances, and 3-0 in terms of goals. That's on a, on a, on a night where you lose 5-4 and they pot three against you. You lost the game right there in that battle alone. And I've counted 10 games where that Miller line has been the clear matchup trio against an, oppo an opposing top line. Um, and there were games where, you know, he, he was able to on occasion hold, for example, when the Penguins came in town, he held Crosby in check. Um, I thought he held his own against um, Duchesne's line in, in the Nashville one, where it was one of their better games despite them blowing the lead and losing. Um, in the win over Anaheim, I thought he fared decently against Trevor Zegris. Um, New Jersey completely dominated them, but despite that, I thought in that game, Miller's line was totally fine against Jack Hughes at 5-5. Five five. But man, there have been other games where that top line hasn't just been beaten. They've been dominated. Uh, I mean, you look back at the, uh, the Toronto game with Austin Matthews. Um, uh, some, the the games where we've seen Ta the Taj Thompson line against uh, a Miller, um, even against Kopitar in that LA game where the Canucks won, Kopitar's line had a ten one edge in shots. Like I I, I sort of added up um, added up the the games where Miller's been um, the clear that line has been the clear go to matchup trio. They've been outshot fifty five to twenty three and outscored five to one. And and I look at look for starters like. I'm not trying to dump on Miller, right? Like at a certain point, it's on the coach for understanding his players and putting them in a position to succeed. Like, I don't want this to be a dumping on Miller thing. 
I think at this point it's on Boudreaux to recognize that it's time for Pedersen to get this opportunity. I think the reason we haven't seen Pedersen get this opportunity is you go back to the conversation that we kind of had with him in Whistler and training camp and he sort of flat out said, look, as long as Kuzmanko's on that line, until I can trust him defensively, despite the fact that I trust Pedersen to play tough minutes, I'm not going to use that trio. Well, I think we're at, we're at the point now, especially when you already have one of your better two-way wingers and Ilya Mikheyev on that line, and you're looking at that, re- looking at those results: outshot fifty-five to twenty-three, outscored five to one with that Miller line in tough in a tough matchup role. You've got no choice but to roll the dice there. You've got to live and die by your best players at this point. Yeah, but is there a case to be made of putting? Kuzmenko, somebody else on, other than Kuzmenko on that line. No, they've been playing too well offensively together know, and they create off the rush. I don't want to tinker with that at all. So, like, it, it can't, honestly, like, it, I don't think it can get, it can get any worse. Um, especially, again, when you have Mikheyev as, as a defensive safety net. If you have two really high-end defensive pieces on that line with uh, with Patterson and Mikheyev, I think you can roll, you can gamble a little bit there with Kuzmenko because at least he'll give you something offensively. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to disagree. We'll get we'll get into that a little bit deeper uh, on the other side, plus uh, Thatcher Demko and previewing the upcoming road trip when the VanCast returns. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. So Harm, back to the current top line and how it finished in the third period. Besser got elevated uh, to that line after opening up the, the game on the third line. Um, what do we make of Besser's two-way impact? Yeah, he's, he's got a couple of goals here now, but just in terms of that powering his overall play. It's been porous. I mean, you look at the underlying numbers and they've the, the team's just been territorially dominated when his when he's been on the ice at five on five. I've got I had a chat with him on um on Sunday. I've got a couple theories in terms of what's gone wrong. I'm curious to hear your sort of take on it first what are you like what are you seeing in terms of the way he's playing and 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 maybe what's missing well i'm seeing a player that's used to playing in the offensive end a little more than he's playing and and as a result you're just seeing him get exposed because defensively um you know there's been times where i've seen him having to 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 play low and you know replace a center in the defensive zone there's been times i've seen him lose puck battles uh, along the wall, not being able to to take away cross-seam passes. There's so many things with this game right now, but overall, I just don't think he's physically engaged. He's not playing with any level of confidence. And I know this this sounds like it's general, but if if he could just have, and he's never been a player with a tremendous amount of bite, but he's been able to tie up sticks, right? He's been able to get inside position, right? He's been positionally sound at various times when he's had a better two-way impact. He is none of those things right now. Absolutely. I think what you mentioned in terms of the battles is massive because I had a chat with him on Sunday after practice, and this was after he was coming off of his uh, two goals uh, against the Kings, and he's feeling pretty good about his game. And I was I was just having this this kind of conversation with him and, and asked him a, a, about how he just sort of felt generally, and he said what. Well, one of the biggest things that he continued emphasizing that he really wanted to drill down on was starting to win those little battles, whether it be along the wall or on the forecheck again. Because when you step back and look at what he brings to the table, when he's played his best hockey in seasons past, that's been such a strength of his game. I remember going into heading into last season, for example, I think in stat had some um had some of their private data and, and they posted some some of the um 2021 NHL leaders in terms of um the forwards who were the best at winning puck battles. Brock Besser was surprisingly up there, along with some pretty high-end two-way names. That was what stood out about uh, stood out to me about, for example, in the 2019-20 season, why he was so successful on the lot a lot. Um in the 2021 season, why he was the club's uh, best forward and was putting up 49 points in 56 games on top of uh, a positive two-way impact was Besser's not going to bring really much of anything to the table in terms of um, dynamic ability or um, 
necessarily being being a guy who is stripping pucks and back checking uh, a ton um, in his own end and, and, and being Patrice Bergeron in that way, how he was able to drive two-way results was using his kind of frame and um, not necessarily being an imposing physical presence, but just being stronger than guys, winning body position and coming away with the puck on a consistent enough basis. And I think that's the biggest thing that's been missing with this game right now. And what was interesting was he mentioned to me, a lot of times for offensive players, they need to score the goals to, um, but before they sort of feel the extra pep in their step, before they before they get kind of like that energy back, um, that gives them that sort of um, that wave of confidence to all of a sudden be starting to win puck battles and things like that. Like I've noticed that a little bit with um, JT Miller, for example, is that when he's going offensively, that's when a lot of the other parts of his game are going as well. Brock Besser, interestingly, seems to be the opposite. He, he says that he kind of derives offensive confidence from his ability to win battles because that's how he is able to keep plays alive in the offensive zone. That's how he feels like he's actually able to contribute to a line um, and feel that, hey, I'm actually helping my line mates um, create offense instead of just being this complimentary piece can that's I, can floating I, around. Are you, do you really buy that? By what? Well, like the the suggestion that his defense drives his offense. I think that's what coaches like to hear. I think that's bullshit. He has always proven to be a bit more complete player when he's going offensively, not the other way around, because then you can lean on that other side of your game. He's been such a wildly offensively inconsistent player, and injuries have contributed to that. But I just see it the other way around, and I think at times he's talked about it the other way, where like you talked to him after he scored two goals. But there, there's been times when he's just not going on any level offensively, and he will tell you how it, it's for him. So much of his confidence comes from his offense. So, like, so I, I don't see that. I don't I've, see that as a guy that you know does all the little things when he's not scoring. I see a guy that his shoulders are down. There's, there's no smile. There's no pep. There's no nothing when he's not going offensively. It's stunning to me how the lotto line was such a good line performing at both ends of the ice and generally because they were playing offensively and two thirds of that line, JT Miller and Brock Besser right now are this bad defensively. Well, it also says, I think a lot about how much Pedersen was driving that line is, is a two way piece. But yeah, I think, you know, a couple interesting things there. I think it is, could be a bit of a chicken and egg thing where it's like, you know, you, you you could totally be right on that. Regardless, they're so connected um, in terms of if Besser wants to, even if Besser's primarily motivated to score goals, he's not going to do it and create that offense unless he's doing those other little things. I'm not saying he's more, I'm not saying he's primarily motivated, right? Like it, it's right. not about that. I think he does care about mm -hmm. both ends of it. I just think that when he's scoring, he feels so good and it affects the other parts of his game other, as opposed to his process is so good and eventually it's going to lead to offense, right? When he's not yeah. scoring, he understands that that is what he's expected to do and mm -hmm. what defines his game. And when he's not doing that, he feels an internal pressure to do it, which he should. And, you know, he's talked about 30 goals. He hasn't talked about, you know, uh, what, what is what is relative course he looks like or his expected goals look like, you, you know, yeah, he'll say certain things about 200 foot game. But generally, when he talks about his goals, it's 30 goal season. It's staying healthy all season. And when those things aren't happening, it affects every ounce of his game as opposed to falling back on good habits and good process that will eventually lead to him scoring. You know, it, it seems when he does break out, it generally tends to be so random as opposed to inevitable. Like I know Drancer is always fond mm -hmm. of saying, yeah, eventually the, the numbers will work themselves out and, you know, your power play can't stay this bad for this long and your penalty killing can't stay that bad for that long. Yeah. But when he scores it, it seemingly comes out of nowhere. And, you know, that may have happened in this case or so not seeing the, the residual effect on the other ends of the ice, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can totally buy that argument. The other thing that sort of sticks out is Besser seems to be the sort of player which, and, and it's problematic considering how injury prone that he is, but he's always, affect, he always strikes me as the sort of player that's affected 
by missing games more than other players, if that kind of makes sense. Like when totally there was agree. a layoff, it just, I think there are a few elements for why, but it just always feels like, I remember, I can't remember if it was his sophomore year or his, or his third year. I think it was his sophomore year when he was coming off the back injury. I remember the first 10 games, he just, after that electric rookie year, for the first, he just looked totally lost in like a shell of himself. And it always feels like there's this really elongated 10 game sort of stretch um, where he needs, like it, it takes that long for him to get back to, back up to speed. And there are, I think, a few elements at play because I asked about that specifically too. I think for starters, and, and he wouldn't say, like he didn't admit this much, but I think part of it is obviously his skating where he's slower than most players and when you take him out of game shape um like it's just it's it just affects him that much slower he's that half a step even slower which is a huge issue the other part of it is the flow aspect and this is what what he was sort of saying was when he sort of came back after after the um the hand injury it wasn't so much that the hand was bothering bothering him but just the flow of the game he sort of felt lost which is important because with Besser, since he doesn't have the foot speed to, to really keep up, he relies on efficiency and reading the play and being a step ahead mentally so that he's taking the right routes and angles um, to make an impact that way and so that so that he's relying on his brain rather than his feet. Well, when he's when he's missed that much time and he hasn't played in preseason and he's just uh, out of the flow of it, he's in his head all of a sudden. And and now he's not only a step behind physically, but he's a step behind in his reads as well. And that's why he sort of becomes invisible, and you see a lack of enge of engagement. And again, it's it's a really big issue because he is so injury prone. So you're you're kind of always expecting him to be in and out of the lineup um, this often. He has to figure out a way to sort of cut down that latency, cut down that lag period of. Hey, I'm out of the lineup and and cold, and uh, I'm out of the swing of things. To oh, I'm back playing um, some of my uh, best hockey. It's just it's too long between those two phases of him. I'll be honest with you, um, because this team's this organization's got to make a lot of decisions. The second he gets on an uptick offensively, I would trade him flat out. They have to. They're in a position to. I don't know that he'll ever be the consistent player Vancouver wants and needs, and he might find that somewhere else. And when I say the Canucks should trade him, it's not a shot. It's as much for him as it is for the club. The club needs to move some core pieces. They can save themselves $6.7 million per. I, I, I get that it's a short-term deal. Um, I don't think he will ever be the player he could be here. And if he goes and becomes that player elsewhere, uh, people will say, oh, they never should have traded him. But remember, opportunity costs. What could you do with that money that you're paying him currently? He's, he's, as soon as he gets on that uptick, he is tradable and he needs a change of scenery. It's not going to go for him here the way Canuck fans want it to go and the way he wants it to go. And, and they've got to make this decision with a lot of players, but they're in a position to move him. And I think we've, I think we've seen what we need to see from Brock Besser as a Vancouver Canuck. I don't know that he'll be that guy again. And again, people are going to say, I'm down. I'm taking a shot at him. It's not that. But for his benefit, it would also help. And I don't think the Canucks would be lesser off if they spend that money wisely. Yeah, it's definitely something to, something to consider. And I think that was part of the bet by management last offseason is when they signed him, to, signed him to an extension. His qualifying offer was such a difficult thing to kind of, um, such a difficult obstacle and a point of uncertainty at a time where so many teams were so worried about their cap situation and worried about unfavorable potential arbitration rulings, it really weighed down on his trade value. And I think what management was kind of hoping was he can, like it, they were hoping to kind of kick the can down the road a little bit uh, in terms of his, in terms of the long-term decision of whether he's part of this group or not, hoping that if he has a big season, it'll, it'll lift his trade value and they'll be in a position to potentially net something back because I'll say I'll say this: I really believe that if there was an opportunity opportunity to kind of dangle him for a decent top four right handed defenseman, that they would have taken that kind of opportunity in the offseason. That trade, that sort of hypothetical trade that we've talked about so long of moving a winger, whether it's Besser or Garland for a top four defenseman, 
it just doesn't exist given the way those players are perceived in, in value, especially considering the cratering value of wingers as a whole, but also how rarely we see top four defensemen moved. But yeah, I mean, it's getting to a point where even just to to open up cap space and, and chart a new direction for this franchise, you've really got to be thinking about his future, about Garland's future, about Horvat's future. You've really got to start dismantling this core group of players. Uh, before we talk about um, the Canucks' average goaltending, let's talk about their stellar goaltending. Elias Pettersson showing Alex Edler how it's done. Like, that was incredible. Nuts, right? And it was funny because it was yet another sort of um, moment of fleeting brilliance from Pedersen as the as the house around him kind of burns down into a pile of rubber. It, 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 it was just kind of a fitting snapshot of the season. And, and watching the way he played, it's just all brains. The way that he was in the blue paint and initially kind of squared Eichel up, taking away that shooting shooting lane, he was begging Eichel to make that pass across. So when Eichel made the pass across that Pedersen knew that he was forcing Eichel to make, it wasn't even a, a hesitation. He was already exploding to his left. He had baited Eichel in, into, that, um, into that pass to Marsha so, and then just, boom, left, outstretched pad save. Man, that was uh, that was awesome to see. Yeah, no doubt. Now, as for the other goaltender, um, what do we make of Thatcher Demko's play? Because he he did some really good things in the first half of that game. And, you know, for me, when I look at his game, I want to see tightness, right? I just don't want to see Puck squeeze through him. And there was a, uh, there was a chance there. There was a, a deflection right in front of the slot that kept the Canucks ahead. But once they scored, it it ended quick, right? Like, um, they were up one nothing, like I said, and and um, there were a couple of chances where we've seen Puck squeeze through, and and they weren't in that moment. But then right after that, like I said, as soon as those goals went in, bang bang, you you could see his play falling back to what we've seen so far this year. When I thought, based on what we saw in his last start and the first half of this start, that maybe the worm was finally turning. Do you take the good that we've seen and think, okay, that that's there, it's coming back, or do you take how it finished and think, here we go again? I'm still worried about him, to be totally honest. Um, yeah. I was hoping... I read your column on it. There's a lot yeah. of... Yeah. Even, even going back to that LA game where he made 36 of 37 saves and he was really, really sharp, there were still moments where that could have really gone wrong for him and the team um, where there were a couple of crossbar crossbars and there were two early whistles where he wasn't able to sort of really freeze the puck and and what should have been goals for the Kings um, Demko was essentially saved on by the refs blowing those early whistles so he had some bounces go his way which you need that I think even just to just get back on track for struggling goaltender that was as well as he could have played against LA but then we saw in this game in the first couple periods, I was thinking, man, he's back. I was like, the way he was making saves off the rush, Vegas was operating full throttle coming down on the Canucks. And, and I was, you know, I was mentioning in the first period how the Canucks were simply overwhelmed and how they, in all honesty, they weren't playing that poorly in the first period. But the second period, Vegas was just fully in control. The Canucks were kind of re regressing back into their old habits. And Demko was unbelievable. But as soon as the fourth three goal was scored. That's where it kind of unraveled on the last two goals. He's such a good puck handler. And on the fourth goal, it was just so surprising to see a mental lapse like that where you only firing it up the middle. Yeah. It like you're up one goal. Like Demko never makes that mistake. You know what I mean? Like you never yeah, see yeah. him make put it that. Off, put it off the wall. There's no doubt. He's I've always thought about how sharp of puck handler he is. And yet for that mistake to happen in that moment and for him to not be able to squeeze the post and that was a really, really soft goal for Smith to get and um, shocking defensive coverage on the fifth goal, for example, yep. even with Stillman and, and Besser, but it just went in too easy through his legs. And yep. when that happens, I, I think you're just kind of back to square one um, in wondering about 
where his game is at, where his confidence level is at, because uh, for as much as the Canucks didn't deserve to win that game at all, he'd kind of put himself in that spot to to um, regain confidence. And I, I think it highlights how both for him and the team, again, just the fragility, because I'll, I'll take a step back and talk about the team again here. After that LA win, I can't believe how Bruce Boudreaux was calling it their best, most complete 60-game performance of the year. I was like, were we watching the same game? I mean, the Canucks, I think, were fine. They they played well enough to win, but they were they allowed nearly 40 shots. They had those crossbars and those early whistles that bailed them out. Demko was was unbelievable. The high danger chances at five on five were 13-7 for LA. I think when you have, and I'm curious to kind of you know, hear what your read of the situation is. But when a coach is looking at a performance like that um, against the Kings and he's having to kind of prop it up as, wow, I was so impressed. That was one of our most complete efforts of the season. I think that's a coach trying to convince his players and make them feel better about themselves when they're clearly not, when they're clearly struggling to find their game um, as a whole, because usually when good teams are winning games, coaches try and downplay how well the team's playing just so that they are um, just so that they stay level headed. And it's telling to me that even when the when the team's playing, you know, playing all right and they're they're winning games that Boudreaux's, you know, feeling the need to kind of pump their tires and, and make the group feel really good about themselves. Well, because they are fragile. Right. And he hasn't held back when they've been bad. He, he didn't necessarily yeah. hold back last night in the here we go again type of theme. Right. So, you know, you, you kind of got to have it both ways. There's going to be times when you've got to cut and there's got to be times where you've got to cure, right? So um, I'm not surprised, right? I, we've, we've got other coaches, you know, when Travis Green was here, it was generally a lot more muted in either direction, right? When they won or when they lost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly Gabby's a little more emotional with his uh, approach to it all. So when he's frustrated, you're going to hear it. And when he feels the need to pump their tires a bit. He's going to do it, right? To let them think that, yeah, it, it is right there for you. You know how to play this way. You're capable of playing this way. You're showing us you can play this way. But this stuff is on a knife's edge, man. And when you look at last year, okay, for as good as Pedersen has been now, and for as much that was wrong with the team then, you know, for the 27 games before Travis got fired, you could make the case that if Pedersen – was playing six out of 10 level hockey instead of two out of 10 level hockey, Travis Green may have kept his job. And yep. right now, you can make the same case for Thatcher Demko. We know how bad this team is, but that doesn't give Demko a pass for the types of goals that have gone in. And if Thatcher Demko was playing six out of 10 hockey at, you know, to his 10, like what, what that looks like, yep. right? There's been games where average goaltending would have got him a win. And yep. that hasn't happened in some games. Are the Vegas Golden Knights better than the Vancouver Canucks? Obviously. But Bruce Boudreaux is going to lose his job. We all understand it's just a case of when. But if Thatcher Demko had played average, and average was how he played the last two months of last season, right? Versus the first half where he was incredible. Like the last two months, if he had played, if he was playing that level of hockey today, the Canucks probably have two to three more wins and we're having a different discussion. But that's how thin it is. You're 100% right. And, and and we get where the – like, again, I'm not trying to say the rest of the Canucks team is good now and that they're losing games because of Demko. And I'm not trying to say the rest of the team was good in the first two months of the season last year. You know, like, there there is more to it. But understand how one player can make such a difference in a game like this. 100%, 100% especially when it's your goaltender. Especially, I think, on that, um, thinking back to the road trip, whether it was, I think the Minnesota game really kind of stood out to me because it kind of preceded the meltdown in the in the home opener at a time where if they had won that game against the Wild, could have swung the momentum where I think at that point, the Canucks would have had, I think, points in two of their last three games and they would have been able to go back to... Uh, you know, go back to home having won a game and at least salvage something from that road trip. When Demko sort of fell short in that game against the Wild, where the Canucks, I thought, considering the circumstances, last game of a grueling road trip, three games and four nights, when he came, you know, that's an example of a game 
where when he falls short there, it just deflates, has such a deflating impact. Not that it's on him specifically, but that's a moment where I thought the Canucks needed him to step up. And there have been, there have been a lot of games interspersed here and there where he hasn't been able to bail the team out. The one thing I will say is, and I know, you know, I, I'm not trying to counter um, what you're saying because the way, you know, you laid it out perfectly, but it is interesting to kind of look at a team like, let's say the Nashville Predators. The Predators are pretty much the, the poster boy right now of a middling franchise. There, Nobody considers them a good team, um, let, let alone a great or an elite one. Well, it's interesting to me that the Predators for most of the season have had UC Saros playing below 900, right? I think just recently now he ticked uh, slightly above it. But for most of the most of the season, he was basically having a Thatcher Demko type season where he's an elite goaltender. He was pretty much the, one of the only reasons the Predators made the playoffs last season. The team, despite his underperformance, though, was able to at least weather the storm and they're still in the thick of the race, right? They're nine, eight and two, which isn't great, but they're, they've at least given themselves a chance to continue fighting. Now, again, Saros has been a bit better than Dimco, but it hasn't been a big difference. That to me is also a, a big difference where there, there's a difference between being nine, eight and two when your goaltender is struggling and being six, 10 and three when your goal, goaltender is struggling, especially when I look at a team like Nashville and the Canucks should be, there's no excuse for the Canucks not to be um, at a similar level as the Nashville Predators when you look at these look at these teams on paper. So 100% Demko's let them down. 100% he hasn't been good enough. The tough part about it too is it's not as if there's one sort of technical flaw that you can immediately um, sort of point to. There's no quick fix that Ian Clark can just have a couple of goalie ice sessions with um, with Demko and sort of patch things up. This looks like the sort of thing that it could take, it, it might take some time to resolve. And if that's the case, this team's in, in such grave trouble. Yeah, I mean, we thought that uh, this deal was already uh, exceeding its value, right? That they were, they were on the good end of it and certainly hasn't played out that way this particular season. I mean, last night was a perfect example. Vegas is the better team, had more shots, had more scoring chances, but a point was there for the taking, if not two. And you can't complain about goal support, right? Because we always hear that, oh, Spencer Martin gets all these goals and that Thatcher Demko doesn't get any. Four goals should be enough to win. It just shouldn't. Today's NHL. And, um, you know, once again, it wasn't last night. Quickly before we go, look ahead to this road trip because we, we can't even look at it from a playoff perspective that, oh, they need to win two out of three to make it a <laughs> successful trip. It's not even about that anymore. So, and you're playing two exceptional teams in Colorado and Vegas, and then it becomes must win on Sunday, but must win for what? I don't even know. It's the second end of a back-to-back, so. Must uh, win just for look, 11th in the Western Conference. Must win so that we have something different to talk about on our next <laughs> fan cast on Monday. Uh, we could come off a win. That would be very nice. But um, anyway, look, uh, this was fun. If you haven't had a chance yet, though, seriously, get on The Athletic. Make sure you get into uh, to the Luke Shen feature that was very good, along with Harm's uh, feature on Thatcher Demko last week. And on another publication on, on – um, uh, Rob Williams has talked about it. He, like Shen says, this has nothing to do with systems. It has nothing to do with coaching. It's purely about a lack of effort. So get on The Athletic and um, check out Harm's piece because uh, he's a fascinating guy who's been through a lot. Not you. You're, you haven't been through a lot. You're through a lot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we want to see I, – I, I'd love to see him here. I just don't see a scenario where he's here after the trade deadline. Uh, as for us, um, follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review. You can subscribe to the Athletics uh, NHL YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the Athletic Hockey Show. Our Black Friday sale is now. Get a new subscription to the Athletic for just $1 a month for 12 months. Before it was six, now it's $1 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash Vancash. You going on the trip, bud? I'm uh, I'm not I'm not going to subject myself to it's like I, I swear every time I go on a full road trip, it just alternate it just alternates doesn't it? Well, I, I don't think Dranch is going on this one uh, either. But oh, but it, it, the I was on this exact um, road trip, the Colorado Vegas swing last season as well, and that was basically like I don't know if you remember the first Colorado game was the worst game game I've ever seen the Canucks play, and that trip as a whole then they had the epic blown lead against vegas like that that was the death of their that the death of 
and end of Travis Green right there. I don't know yeah. what it is. The first road trip and, and the one um, in November last season. Every time I'm on the road, it just um, there's just chaos and uh, tire fire around me. So I don't know. Maybe I got to get back on the road more just for the Connor Bedard effort here. But um, no, I'm not on this road trip. All right, Vegas is a fun town, buddy. You're well, missing I've out. Gone twice treat? in the last twelve months, so I've I've had enough of Vegas. Are you old enough to gamble? Yes. I didn't though. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, again, um, VIPs are the best there is. We will be back on Monday. <laughs> <laughs>